This is chapter four, Bring Me the Rhinoceros by John Tarrant. Ordinary mind is the way. Zha Zhu asked Nan Quan, what is the way? Nan Quan said, ordinary mind is the way. Should I turn toward it or not? If you turn toward it, you turn away from it. Zhao Zhu asked, how can I know the way if I don't turn toward it? Nan Quan said, the way is not about knowing or not knowing. When you know something, you are deluded. And when you don't know, you are just empty headed. When you reach the way beyond doubt, it is as vast and infinite as space. You can't say it's right or wrong. With these words, Jaju had sudden understanding. So would anyone like to say something? taking this class in right use for power and sometimes nobody talks because they told us they said if you normally talk don't talk and if you normally don't talk then talk so nobody talks i guess they were all talkers but what's ordinary mind i'm thinking it's being present just being present without judging where you are and what you're doing, maybe. Milan's name is spelled different. Whose name is spelled different? Milan. Oh, she keeps <laughs> spelling her name differently. Oh. I don't know why. So this morning, Joan was talking about essentially ordinary mind, and she's taking a, a class through a New York Sangha during this 90-day period. And she said that what came to her up to her in the last talk about ordinary mind was very much like when you're first born, a newborn baby, you have no stories. You come into this world without any stories and you're just taking things in as they are. And so that's what I think of after Joan spoke as ordinary mind, just taking things in as if you were a newborn without any stories attached to any of it. You don't have words yet. You don't have labels yet. You don't have fears or even bravery toward it because you've experienced nothing. And so anyway, that's what I think of. My uh, college roommate and I went to Oregon and we were sitting at the breakfast table with my grandfather who had an eighth grade education but actually it was pretty successful in, in light of that. And, and in spite of that, 
But anyway, we were all talking. We were, I think, freshman or sophomore in college. And somehow the word sophistication come, came up. And I was been thinking about this. And he said, now, what, this is in a Russian, a thick Russian accent. What is sophistication? And, and he, he definitely had ordinary mind in the way he asked that. It was really beautiful. And I feel so ashamed. We were probably so full of ourselves. I wanted to say that um, having grown up in a Catholic religion, uh, much of the time was spent defining what is good and bad. And the thing about Zen is uh, when they ask you to sort of look away from the usual definition of good or bad, it's uns it's unsettling, um, but it's also very freeing. Um, so that was kind of what struck me. It made me start to think um, uh, maybe... As a child, I understood that we were asking the wrong, I was asking the wrong questions in my religion. I understood it in a different way. Um, when I have seen on like Japanese, um, a, a Japanese concept. And I say Japanese because it's where I saw it. But I don't know if other countries or cultures also have that way of thinking. And it was that there's some beings that are beyond good and evil they are so beyond our level that they even, the concept of good and evil does not apply to them. I guess an example of that would be a hurricane. A hurricane is neither good nor evil, it just is. So, or an earthquake or something is just, it is what it is. So I don't know if this is that, but it's what comes to mind. Thank you, anyone else? We haven't heard from Milan or Nandia, or Nel, we did hear from Nelda. I have nothing to share. Okay, thank you. And Nandia, do you have ordinary mind? Um, just about uh, the passage we read, it just seems that uh, in turning toward a thing, uh, one has already uh, assumed a position or a relationship to it. So um, by gazing in one direction, one turns one's back on a myriad of other perspectives. So I like that. 
Yeah. So where you have the option of 360 degrees, you take one degree. Correct. Okay. I guess I'm next. The heaven that's already here. Just watch children playing. Eat vegetable soup instead of duck stew. Matsu Basho's advice to poets. It is natural to look for the things you want outside of where you are now. That is the whole point of a journey. Yet this moment, is all anyone has. So if freedom, love, beauty, grace, and whatever else is desirable are to disappear, they must appear in is, a now. Um, excuse me, he said appear, not disappear. Thank you. So if freedom, love, beauty, grace, and whatever else is desirable are to appear, they must appear in a now. Thank you. It would be nice if they appeared in the now you have now. And if they are to appear and endure, they will have to be found in ordinary circumstances. Since ordinary circumstances fill most of life, the, <laughs> the marvelous, the lovely will have to be right here in the room where someone is reading, someone is sick, someone is coughing, two people are making love or a man is yelling at a dog. It will have to appear in the sound of rain splashing off trees, of a <coughs> truck laboring up a grade, of TV from another room. It will have to appear in the sight of a child running, in the feeling of a headache, in the anxiety of preparing for exams, in worrying over a sick child. It will have to appear in what is ordinary, usual, commonplace, and right under your nose. Here's a koan about the heaven of the ordinary. The koan, ordinary mind is the way. From the age of 18, Zazu was the student of the great master, Naquin. He worked in the gardens, ran errands, studied, and tried to meditate, become half student, half son to the older man. The meditation was a problem. He wanted his meditation to be athletic, single-minded, convinced everything he wasn't. He had a sense. Oops, I lost it. That there was a was great spacious that there were great spacious realms of consciousness, but not for him. As soon as he sat down to meditate, he wanted to get up again. He couldn't banish the, the flurry of distractions, or if he did, he just felt dull. So he asked for technical support. Dazu was unclear about the problem, and so he was unsure what to ask. He was also embarrassed, so he began with a general question that didn't give too much away. 
I think um, Lynn is next. I think Melinda's muted. Oh, <laughs> what is a way? Ordinary mind is a way, said his teacher. But that's just a problem, thought Zhao I couldn't be more mundane. One minute, it's all enlightenment, enlightenment, this. One minute, it's all enlightenment, this enlightenment that and the next i'm dreaming about girls he couldn't imagine that the life he already had might be beautiful or true he caught to this technical question should i turn toward it or not if you turn toward it you turn away from it nanquan seemed amused Zhu considered this. The teacher had a point, but it was a very frustrating point. Sometimes the young man would think he was meditating, but he wasn't really. He was trying to meditate. The trying seemed to be in the way. It was like learning to swim. If you thrash about too much, you sink. But if you stop thrashing about, you float. Yet he had no trust in his body's buoyancy. At first he brooded, you sink no matter what, and he was genuinely puzzled. He had never done a single thing in his life without trying. His mind wandered. Recently, he was having intense memories of childhood in which he seemed to be in his home and to be and to see the golden light coming through the door with such perfect richness that he might have bathed in it. But whatever came to mind, he thought, this isn't it, and tried to push past it. Wherever he turned, there was a wall. He burst out, how can I know the way if I don't turn toward it? The teacher seemed to have moved closer. Though in fact, he hadn't stirred. The boy became calmer, aware of being close to the older man, of the scent of the pines, of the length of the moment, just as in his vision of childhood. The way is not about knowing or not knowing. When you know something, you are deluded. And when you don't know, you are just empty-headed. When you reach the way beyond doubt, it is as vast and infinite as space. You can't say it's right or wrong. On the outside, <clears throat> these words didn't make any more sense than others Zhao Zhu had heard. But at this moment, he understood them. This completely surprised him and almost everyone else who knew him. It was not a great crashing awakening, but still it was a relief, something real to rest on. 
When he looked up, things were exactly so. The traffic on the road, the sound of a hammer, a genuine moment. Kim, uh, it's Emily. It's Emily. Oh, sorry. Um, from that time on, he was not in a hurry. He was happy with slowness and plainness. Children growing, trees moving across a hillside year by year. Ah, this, he thought, this, this. He never used energy that he didn't have to use. He studied with his teacher for 40 more years until the old man died. At about 60, he went on a long, slow pilgrimage for 20 years. He didn't bother teaching until he was about 80 and so old that it seemed somehow discourteous not to. It is said that he taught until he died at 119. He was terrific at conveying the beauty of ordinariness. Now that's wonderful, isn't it? Indeed. That's not a bad thing to be terrific at. Ordinary mind. Yeah, teaching, uh, conveying ordinariness. Yeah. The beauty of it. So uh, sometimes Zenis is called um, farmer, the farmer's Buddhism. And maybe that relates to the ordinary, the the kind of uh, finding importance in the ordinary. I feel that, um, remember my poem, uh, Delight? I feel it's really, it's just, I, I feel that it is to really living your life and seeing it and appreciating it every single moment of it because it's precious and the beauty is all around us at every moment. I mean, if there's any such thing, do you think ordinary people have this concept of ordinary, the beauty of ordinariness? I think that sometimes, I think that the word ordinary life, well, ordinary is said like looking down on it, like it's not good enough because it's not considered unique. But in fact, I think that ordinary, that's the good life. And you know, for most of our lives, we probably would be insulted if someone said, you're really ordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, is there anything more ordinary than a sunset or a sunrise? It happens every single day. And it is precious. That's a good example. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been taught that ordinariness is bad. I think. You know? If you're just having an ordinary day, well, what are you doing with your life? When really that's 
that's the important part. The people you meet, the, the flowers you see, that those kind of things are so ordinary and yet so important. And how do we diminish most of our life, Melissa? When you think about what your day consists of, I don't care if you're a celebrity or a national politician, most of your day is sleeping, eating meals, taking a shower, getting dressed. I mean, it's quite ordinary. It's the mundane tasks of life, uh, brushing your teeth. And so when you think of how much time you spend in the ordinary, and then you dishonor that by thinking that it's lesser. You're basically one, not you, personally. Melissa. No, I know. <laughs> one is basically dishonoring most of their life. Well, if you look at kids, especially little kids, they get so excited about that rock on the, you know, that's misplaced and is in the sidewalk instead of on the you know, with the other rocks or, or look there, all the rocks are all together or, you know, it's just walking and looking. It's an amazingly fun thing to do with them because they are, they do. They see everything that is ordinary as extraordinary. What about brushing each tooth? Hmm? That is amazing too, the sensation, the scent of whatever you're using, the water in your cup or in your hands or however you do it. I mean, that is an amazing moment too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just brushed my teeth, so <laughs> that's why I thought of that. Well, mindfulness, you know, eating mindfully. That was when I did a mindfulness meditation one time that was about eating mindfully. It was amazing just to be aware of every bite you took, you know, and stop and, and don't think about it, but to stop and just be there. Yeah, I was talking to the food nutritionist today and she was telling me about taste. I asked her about taste and she said, we don't spend enough time tasting. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I uh, the vagus nerve, is something that um, it is the one in control. It's the switch to turn on your sympathetic nervous system or your, um, oh my goodness, I just forgot the name of the parasympathetic nervous system. So one is the fight or flight response for free fear or anger when we're in danger. But the other one is relaxation. And the vagus nerve is the one that controls that. So one of the things that meditation does is that it switch, it makes the vagus nerve activate the parasympathetic nerve system, which makes us be able to relax. Mm. So one of the things that actually turn on the vagus nerve that we can actively do to relax is actually enjoying the taste of food. When you're eating 
and you seriously enjoy it, you're activating your vagus nerve and all the good that comes with it. So yeah, we do not spend enough time tasting. Or, you know, you could do so many listening or, or looking or smelling or, you know, anything like that, touching. I think it's all about enjoying in life, feeling it, and being, like Melissa was saying, being a part of it, being present at each moment. And I would also like to point out, um, I never thought much of walking. Um, but then when I couldn't walk for six years, it is so magnificent to be able to walk. And it's the most ordinary thing that we do maybe, but it's so magnificent. Everything that we can achieve just by standing up and be able to move from one place to the other. So it's just precious. Thank you. Who's next? I'm not sure if it's you or me. Working with the koan, when you observe common things closely, they have an emphatic quality, a thusness that is like a charge around them and which is both beautiful and satisfying. To see the way the corners of the room meet or light bounces off a floorboard is enough for a reason for life. Painters understand that the interesting object is the round glass, the box, the rusty down pipe, and that there is no need to reach for a meaning beyond what is visible. By their beauty, Objects bring the eye of the beholder into contact with infinity. One of my painting teachers would say, my greatest discovery was that corners pick up dirt. <laughs> you know, what's more ordinary than that? I like that. There is another quality of ordinary mind, which is the interior of consciousness the voices in the head, the shift of feeling and sensation. Yes, that's it. The voice in your head that says, I don't have voices in my head. That one. Ordinary means that there is no, ordinary means that there is no need to add or take away from what is going on in the mind. Each portion of life has the whole of life. There's nothing wrong with what is in the mind except, except the sense that something is wrong. In this way, simplicity turns to a form of compassion. When there is no objection to the states of mind that arise, ordinary or painful or thick, then they have their moment and move along like clouds in the trade winds and there is no flaw in the thinker or in the moment that is taking place. Huh. 
there is an ordinary mind story about visiting a friend in a hospital. Like Zhao my friend was not in a hurry either. Usually one thinks of a hospice has something to do with dying and he was indeed dying. But on this day, the story was simple and wasn't about dying at all. It was about men at lunch. One morning I woke up and thought out of the blue, today is the right day to see Phil Whalen. I dropped my daughter off at school, got the blood test I get periodically and drove down highway 101 past sodden spring fields and through intermittent rain. Philip was a beat poet and also abbot of Hartford Street Zen Center. At the time of this story, he was in the San Francisco Zen Center hospice on Page Street. So, uh, Philip Whalen was also my uh, first teacher who Nelda knows, Carl's um, teacher. But I'm trying to, uh, how can I do this? And he's an incredible poet if you don't, um, here we what go. Are, what are you holding there, a pizza box or something? Yes. Okay. You're, you're hungry. My, this is the, the works of ah. Philip Whalen. <laughs> uh, incredible, incredible, beautiful poet. And um, yeah. And so Carl Jerome, who um, started me off in all this. And Nelda and I took a few classes with him and then Nelda took more. Um, anyway, so Philip Whalen was his teacher. So this is fun to read about. Though I, I did know how you know anything about how he died. Okay, who's next? Um, I am. At first, I can't get into the hospice, but I bang a lot, and a well-dressed man in his late thirties pops his head out. He has the air of having come a very long way from an interesting room. I'm not supposed to answer the door, he announces, and disappears. By the time I get in, the only proof of his existence is that I am now standing inside instead of on the pavement. I wander around and go upstairs. I, I love the line, he has the air of having come a very long way from an interesting room. It's not a matter of a physical distance, is it? But coming from a place where something really happened that was special. Okay, who's next? I. 
I think it might be me. Sorry. The rooms have got sleeping people in them. I find Philip's room because it is the only one with a closed door. Inside, it is a world of his own. He's lying, he lying flat on his back, staring at, this, at a ceiling. He can't see because his diabetes has affected his eyes. He used to be rotund in the laughing Buddha style. Now he is thin, but not emaciated. He can't sit up without help. The classical music station KALW is playing something Mozarty with strings. There are daffodils in a vase, and they make a yellow haze that he claims to see and appreciate. He tells me they are king of, he remembers these things. How are you, Phil? Well, I'm not dead. <clears throat> it's most embarrassing. What do you think of lying here during the day? Well, I don't think. They call me up and ask me what I think about reincarnation. I don't think about any, any I don't think anything about reincarnation. I think we should paint it yellow and stand it in the corner. <laughs> And maybe dust it off every once in a while. And how does it go for you? I get more irritable, but they don't seem to notice. Well, you've always claimed to be more obnoxious than others think you are. Emily, I think it's you. What? Hmm. <coughs> They're into process here. What do you mean process? How you're supposed to die. Hmm. They want me to die in stages. I can't be bothered with that. Perhaps you could consider it a performance event. <laughs> My hair is a mess. Friends shave Philip's head for him. And he has something less than a centimeter of gray stubble on his head. He likes it smooth. Pass. So I have to decide what to eat for lunch. Normally I would order, order Chinese, but it's hard to eat lying down. I could get you some dim sum. The dim sum factory is far from here. And I think of dim sum as something you should eat while it's happening, not someone brought me some good bread. I have a refrigerator under the bed and it's full of good things. It's a matter of deciding what good thing to put on the bread. Have you seen a taller, a tall older man wandering around outside? Well, look at this. So I don't know that that's Carl. We don't know, do we? But it could be. Would you call him a tall 
I haven't seen him in person. I oh, don't no, know. He's, he's not that tall and he wouldn't have been older then. Let's see when Bill Boylan died. I don't know. But I take it. Um, well, tall is relative. Maybe they're all wizened, short old women there. That could be. People are a lot taller when you're lying down and looking up. And he would have known how tall Carl is if Carl was his long-term student. He died in 2002. Okay. years ago. So Carl would have been around um, 45 or something. Not an old man. No, I don't think so. Okay. Who's reading? Uh, you just read, yes? Yeah. No. no. It's Carl. He's bringing me lunch. Well, I'm here. I must be Carl today. There's a refrigerator in a closet. It has salami, eight kinds of olives, Munster. I raid the big fridge downstairs in the kitchen and also find a sharp cheddar along with some raw onions. He sends me on a... Retsna? Hunt? He weaves behind him at a pantry waves behind him at a pantry that I imagine existed in some other perhaps now vanished room. Spring sunlight angles through the window, frail and hopeful. Someone was supposed to bring a jar of what this is, Retza, Retzina. Uh, and I searched the room for it. Why don't we look that up? Yes. That would be great. Thank you. Oh. A Greek white or rose a wine flavored with resin. Ah, uh, okay. Never heard of it. Huh. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I crawl around for a while at eye level with the furniture legs. It is a pleasant thing to do and even becomes exhilarating. Crawling around on the floor is the best way of seeing a room, I decide. A bottle of Dos Equus turns up in the refrigerator and he declares, that's it. Philip eats slowly and appreciatively. Since he is blind, his hand reaches around Terribly as it had an exploratory impulse of its own. It touches the pieces of food tenderly. The beer bottle he orients in the way. He lowers it gently and touches it first to his nose. Then he moves it carefully down his upper lip until he gets to his mouth and then he tips it and drinks. The sun moving west is warming and yellowing. At this time, 
He's not dying. I'm not visiting a dying man. Two men are having lunch, one lying down, one sitting. Now I love that last part. He's not dying at the moment. I'm not visiting a dying man. Two men having lunch. We talk books. He has Shakespeare to be read to him and otherwise is fond of the 18th century writers. Has Gibbon's autobiography, Boswell's Life of Johnson, Stern's Tristram Shandy. I think then that he is an 18th century man himself with his large head that seems to be full of light, his detailed knowledge about so many things, his way of being spiritual but concrete. He has none of the misty romanticism that the Victorians passed down to modern meditators. And unlike many Buddhists, he has not made a pretend Buddhist world to live in. He likes and dislikes this world with its physical pains and its pungent salami and the low midday sun warming the window. He doesn't yearn toward another world than this one. Supposedly, during an entire meditation period, he would count to 10. He would count his breaths to 10 and then start over again. And he could do that without having another thought. And some people think that's great. And some people think, oh, no, yeah, terrible. <laughs> I'm going to read now since Nelda wanted to switch places. Oh, I beg your pardon. No, switching is fine. <laughs> I'm living too long. I may have to leave. How will that be? How is it here for you? I like it here. They treat me well. But they're not allowed to give me certain drugs and so on because I'm supposed to be dying more quickly. They may have to move me out. It's an administrative matter. When I leave, I kiss him on his stubbly head and shake his hand. I hope to see you again, he says. And then he mumbles something. I wait a beat and turn back. What was that? With the sweetest smile, he says, I don't think it hasn't been real. I could find nothing lacking or needing to be improved about Philip. There was nothing he needed to turn toward, no special way to go into the night. After he died, I got a card about Philip's death. It mentioned his theory that he was a failure and lived as long as he did because of a curse he had put on paper. A photo was included of Philip making rings around his eyes with his fingers as if he had found glasses that would allow him to see, ordinary mind is the way. That's a lovely chapter. The phrase that I that I kept going to is the part when it was said that through beauty, you got you you it was you got to see infinity. In the beginning, you mean in the, was that in the koan? 
Well, it, not right in the, afterwards. It, um, keep going. No, no, that the other way. <laughs> go one. Go again. One more. Sorry. There. No, not there. Is it possible to do a word search? That's what I'm doing, but it gives a different. What was another part of the phrase? Infinity. I did infinity. When you reach the way beyond doubt, it is as vast and infinite as space. You can't say it's right or wrong. Is that what you were thinking? No. It's a, oh, there it is. There, you have it. You have it. Yes. Thank you, Emily. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is that it goes, so it starts. I guess in the paragraph before. Um, no, that's not the one. Because it's oh, the here's, one. Here's doing. a whole bunch with, oh wait, no, that's with when. It's the one with beauty. You're not talking about the ordinariness of beauty. The beauty of ordinariness. Does anybody else have the sense that we're doing exactly what the koan is talking about by searching and searching <laughs> for this one particular thing to the exclusion of everything else? Thanks, Dandria. He was a terrific at conveying the beauty of ordinariness. Okay, I found it. It's right here. Um, by their beauty, objects bring the eye of the beholder in contact with infinity. Painters understand that the interesting object is the round glass, the box, the rusty down pipe, and that there is no need to reach for a meaning beyond what is visible. By their beauty, objects bring the eye of the beholder into contact with infinity. I keep coming back to this one. For some reason, the painting, the girl with the pearl earring came immediately to mind. There's something about the, or, the beauty of that pearl, the beauty of what the girl's just face, who she is, um, the beauty of the fabric that she has on her head, just all of it is just so gorgeous. And, mm -hmm. and the true color of that, assuming that was the true color captured, by their beauty, objects bring the eye of the beholder into contact with infinity. Yes. Yes. And that's whether it's a realistic painting or an abstract painting. painting. Who was it, Kim, whose art you showed us 
um, I don't remember, it was a, a man who painted uh, California coastlines and, and it was all abstract. It was patches of blue running into patches of yellow and patches of brown, patches of color for the buildings. I, I don't remember. Uh, well, so I'm just saying, regardless of whether it's um, abstract or other. I was reminded, reminded of, uh, of a photographer of the 60s, William Eggleston. So he started photographing in color, ordinary life things. I don't know if you have seen it, but- Who? William Eggleston. Oh, Eggleston, sure. Yeah. Yeah, to One me. One of the first color photographers. Yeah. But it's simply the same beautiful of life. So it's interesting to me that this day was so poignant, not only because of the two men who were sharing it and their orientation. And I don't know if others have had the same experience. When you're with someone in their last days, every moment is more poignant and real. And if we would treat every moment as if it were our last, I think we would be more in the present and enjoy it and appreciate it. Oh, how beautiful. Yes, there it is. You just showed a picture of the of the abstract. This? This, right. Look, I'm pointing at the screen like you can see. There. It is Eggleston. Yeah, but there was a painter who... Um... I re yeah, I remember who you were talking. Do you remember? About. Did we do it in concentration meditation? No, we. Are you we thinking of Hopper? Because this looks very much no. like a Hopper painting. No, it's uh, it's a California painter, and we read about him in John Tarrant's other book. Oh, he mentioned him. Yeah, and he did like <laughs> a sort of like a green and blue landscapes. Yeah. I, I can't remember his name, but I went to a show of his and there was an old man sitting in the corner on a chair and I kept thinking that must be him, that must be him, but it wasn't. Then I finally found a photo of him and that wasn't him, mm. but I can't think of his name. It will come. Yeah. After we log off, it'll come. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Imagine these pictures though, the first time people saw them because they were the but you said they were the first color ones, yeah? Well, you not the first, the first color, color photography, but the first um, photographer really to be uh, accepted in the art world. Contemporary color photographer. Because that's amazing, you know. Like my teacher used to say, color is, is not abstract enough. So it wasn't an art form. Who is the um, who photographer that does all the black and white? Um, 
What's that? I want to. I want to say his. Uh, I, I won't say because I'll get it wrong. But he, um, he photographs landscapes and and you things mean, like that. And Ansel Adams, or yes, yeah, yes, yeah. That and then that is so also amazing because we're so used to seeing everything in color. Well, he and did a lot more than that. He he photographed a lot of Yosemite, and then I went to Yosemite, mm -hmm. and I would. I was imagining that his photographs would be all around as I, you know, looked around, and they weren't at all. Huh. How funny! I, I, I really like his stuff. How much he captures in such a small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he's not working yes. with the ordinary. I think he's working with the magnificence. Hmm. There's other photographers probably who do more with the ordinary. Yeah, his yeah, work doesn't, even though his work is exquisite, it doesn't appeal to me at all because it just makes everything look too fucking precious. Hmm. So there's another perspective for you. Yeah. I used to, I used to think that. I used to think that until I saw one of his photographs. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen them face to face. Like in the yes, scale, I've seen them. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to feel that way, Mandia, until I don't know, and then I came across a couple of them, and the scale of it. I don't know. Yeah. Kind of. I saw I saw an exhibit in San Antonio. Yeah. I don't know. It really struck me. So what I find most about amazing about this book is that it gives me exactly what I want, which is to be with you and to listen mm -hmm. to each of you as you're talking and to hear your heart minds um, and voices and to just be here with you. And so the book is just fluff for what is lovely moments of life. Thanks, Nala. It's true. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. See you next week. Same time, Thank same you, place. Bye -bye. All right. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.